Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and anti-Semitism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the evening of December 28, 1941, Czech soldiers Jan Kubisch and Josef Gabčík sat anxiously in the cargo hold of a British bomber plane. They were headed to the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia on a top-secret mission. The journey was treacherous. As the plane flew over Nazi-occupied France and later Germany, it frequently came under fire from the German Luftwaffe, or Air Force. Luckily, the bomber managed to evade the Nazi attacks and safely enter the Protectorate's airspace. Around 2 a.m., Gabčík and Kubisch reached the drop zone. They inched toward the bomber's open door and jumped into the night sky. The snow was so thick that it was impossible to accurately judge the distance to the ground. Gopchik landed hard and severely injured his ankle. When Kubish rushed over to check on his partner, he realized that the situation was dire. Gopchik struggled to walk on his own, and they were sitting ducks in a wide-open field behind enemy lines. Falling into the hands of the Nazi secret police would be a death sentence for the two men. Not only were they members of the Czech resistance, they were also assassins. Their mission was to kill one of the most powerful security officers in the Nazi high command, Reinhard Heydrich. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're taking a look at Hitler's henchmen. These officers helped the Nazi leader build his regime and spread terror across Europe. Last week, we explored the rise of SS officer Reinhard Heydrich. After a failed career in the Navy, Heydrich joined the Nazi takeover of Germany and worked closely with SS leader Heinrich Himmler. As the Nazis consolidated their power, Heydrich became one of the most ruthless officers in the entire regime. This week, we'll look at Heydrich's brutal suppression of all dissent in the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. We'll also explore his role as one of the architects of the Holocaust and the precarious plot to take him out. We'll head to the Protectorate right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. 
She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. By the summer of 1941, SS Führer Reinhard Heydrich was one of the highest-ranking men in Nazi Germany. He'd spent the past decade transforming himself into the ultimate zealot and dedicated his entire being to Himmler and the SS. But unlike Himmler, who mostly spouted theories and rhetoric, Heydrich was a man of action. With Europe descending into war, Heydrich consolidated his power over the police and intelligence gathering agencies, becoming the eyes and ears of the regime. Simultaneously, he oversaw the ethnic cleansing of Germany's perceived enemies. He ordered the arrest and execution of tens of thousands of Jews and political dissidents. During the Polish and Soviet invasions, his Einsatzgruppen death squads massacred more innocent civilians. All of these horrors cemented his brutal reputation and posthumously earned him the nickname Hitler's Hangman. Thus, when the Nazis encountered resistance in the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia in mid-1941, Hitler knew that Heydrich was the only man who could restore order. After the Nazis first annexed Czechoslovakia in 1938, they'd split the nation into two. This created an independent Slovak state, led by Nazi collaborator Josef Tiso, and the Reich Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. While the Slovak state was allowed to operate autonomously with some Nazi influence, the Reich Protectorate became the equivalent of a Nazi colony. But instead of simply replacing the Czech officials with Nazis, Hitler implemented a complicated political system based on race and nationality. German nationals living in the Protectorate automatically gained Reich citizenship and followed laws handed down by the Third Reich. Everyone else, including Czechs, Jews, and Roma, fell under the protectorate government. That government was overseen by a Reich protector. The first man to hold the position was Konstantin von Neurath. His job was to cater exclusively to Germany's needs. Czechoslovakia contained many of Europe's largest weapons factories, as well as important copper and nickel mining facilities. Thus, the region was vitally important to the German war machine. After the invasion, the Nazis had these resources under their control. By exploiting Czech labor, Hitler's forces could now rapidly arm themselves for any future incursions. Most Czech citizens grudgingly accepted this transition because it felt somewhat familiar. Under the thumb of the former Habsburg monarchy, political policy had also been based on nationality. 
Often, this resulted in clashes of power between the German-speaking Austrian minority and the Czech majority. But once World War II broke out in 1939, the Nazis tightened their grip even further over the protectorate. They implemented new anti-Jewish policies, censorship laws, and arrested waves of intellectuals. As these Nazi crackdowns expanded, some Czech dissidents mobilized a resistance movement. Finally, after the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, the Czech resistance made serious progress. Throughout that August, rebellious munitions workers slowed down production or went on strike. Meanwhile, Czech saboteurs destroyed Nazi communication and transportation lines. As a result of these challenges, Hitler lost faith in Reich protector Neurath and replaced him with 37-year-old Reinhard Heydrich in September 1941. Heydrich saw this new assignment as a chance to, as historian Callum MacDonald writes, become a major figure in shaping the destiny of the new Europe. And he intended to undertake his new duties with extreme prejudice. Heydrich had a three-step plan for restoring order to the protectorate, pacification, transformation of the government, and cultural Germanization. Step one, pacification, actually involved brutal suppression. On September 27, 1941, Heydrich arrived in Prague and immediately placed the protectorate under martial law. He organized special trials to convict anyone even accused of sabotaging Germany's military or economic interests. For the next two months, Heydrich unleashed a wave of terror on the Czech people. The Gestapo invaded the streets and arrested somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 accused dissidents. Of those arrested, 404 were officially sentenced to death, many of whom belonged to Czech resistance groups. Many of the prisoners who were spared the firing squad were transported to concentration camps like Mauthausen. According to historian Robert Gerwart, of the 1,299 Czech people sent to Mauthausen, only 4% survived the war. In a matter of weeks, Heydrich effectively destroyed the resistance within the protectorate. Heydrich also imposed new economic policies and propaganda to pacify the Czechs. At the time of his arrival, the protectorate faced severe food shortages, which were subsequently exploited by profiteers. In response, Heydrich sent the Gestapo after them. Meanwhile, he offered additional food rations and tobacco to munitions workers, much like a carrot on a stick. He also used propaganda to portray the Soviets as barbarians. He even organized an exhibit derisively titled Soviet Paradise, which showcased the desolate conditions of life under communism. The goal was to paint the Soviet Union as the real enemy and suggest that the Bolsheviks were far more ruthless than the Nazis. After all, the harsh conditions imposed by the Nazis were supposedly only temporary. Once the war ended and the Soviets were defeated, life in Prague would go back to normal. But in Heydrich's view, there was never going to be a return to normalcy, especially when it came to the government. 
Step two of his plan for bringing order to the Protectorate involved stamping out any remaining Czech autonomy. Between 1941 and 1942, Heydrich consolidated German authority over every facet of the Protectorate's government. He replaced Czech civil servants with Germans and merged various Czech agencies into the Reich Protector's office. Heydrich also created a new department which oversaw the publication of pro-Nazi propaganda. Thus, by early 1942, the Czech Protectorate's president was nothing more than Heydrich's mouthpiece. The final step of Heydrich's plan to rule involved cultural Germanization. This meant erasing the Czech national identity and replacing it with a German one. Heydrich never considered long-term assimilation for the entire Czech populace as a viable option. He firmly believed that it was nearly impossible to, quote, turn Czech garbage into Germans. So Heydrich accelerated the process. He brought in so-called racial experts who tested the Czech population. Those deemed, quote, racially good or well-intentioned were allowed to stay. Those marked, quote, racially bad and ill-intentioned were to be deported. Others would be castrated, sent to Germany as forced labor, or executed. Much like Heinrich Himmler's philosophy of Aryan purity, this system was influenced by pseudoscientific teachings. Heydrich subscribed to the ideas of two German academics who argued that the Czech and Bohemian regions were initially German, but had become tainted with Slavic blood. For Heydrich, the goal was to take those Czech citizens allowed to stay in their homeland and transform them into Germans. Heydrich believed it was possible for the so-called good Czech to, quote, regain their German blood. To help this transition, Heydrich used German propaganda. By distributing Nazi newspapers and organizing speeches, Heydrich attempted to rewrite history. He wanted to brainwash Czechs into believing that there was an inextricable connection between Czech and German cultures. At the same time, Heydrich bombarded Czech society with German exhibitions. He made sure they were exposed to the finest German music. He organized festivals featuring the Berlin Philharmonic, where the orchestra played pieces by Mozart and Beethoven. Under Heydrich, the vibrant, multicultural city of Prague was transformed into a bastion of the German folk. But the man with the iron heart wasn't done yet. Like other high-ranking Nazi officials, Heydrich juggled many responsibilities within the regime. Despite being stationed in the Protectorate, he oversaw much of the Nazis' persecution against the Jewish population across the Third Reich. The bulk of that persecution centered around forced resettlement or violently pushing Jews to flee the Reich. But by early 1942, the Nazis believed they needed to intensify their already brutal anti-Jewish policies. The result was a new system of genocide called the Final Solution. Coming up, the Vonzi Conference changes modern history. 
Hi, Parcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our fifth anniversary series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Throughout the fall of 1941, SS officer Reinhard Heydrich enacted brutally suppressive measures in the Czech territory called the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. He rounded up resistance fighters and political dissidents, consolidated Nazi political authority, and sought to destroy Czech culture. But ethnic Czechs weren't the only people Heydrich was charged with eliminating. The Nazis' long-term goal was to remove Europe's Jewish population altogether. For decades, this had been the principal ideological tenet of Hitler's Aryan vision. Heydrich believed it was his destiny to bring that vision to life. And a sudden shift in the tide of the war granted him that very opportunity. Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941 was supposed to be a swift victory. But by autumn, the Soviets successfully stalled the German advance, and the Nazis were ill-prepared for the harsh Russian winter. As the Nazi forces struggled into the colder months, Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in December brought the United States into the war. And since the U.S. was already providing military aid to Britain, Hitler believed it was only a matter of time until American troops landed in Europe. Hitler, along with his minister of propaganda, Josef Goebbels, was convinced that Jews were responsible for President Roosevelt's decision to enter the war. Specifically, he believed the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that Jews were seeking to use the war as a means of profit. Following these paranoid beliefs, Hitler wanted to change the approach toward Europe's Jews. In early December, Hitler informed the Nazi High Command that the time had come for the mass expulsion of the Jewish people. Among the Nazi brass, the, quote, final solution to the Jewish question was constantly evolving. At first, it did not include the systematic murder of Jews. Instead, forced resettlement was the preferred approach. But those resettlement plans also changed frequently. 
The Nazis couldn't decide on a place to put the European Jews they sought to relocate. The initial destination was Poland, and at one point, they even considered the island of Madagascar. However, wartime logistics prevented these plans from coming to fruition. Waging a war on two fronts left little manpower or infrastructure to handle the massive resettlement plans. Thus, Heydrich and his SS boss Heinrich Himmler agreed to wait until after the war to resettle the persecuted Jewish people. They believed that conquered Soviet land would be the ideal destination once the Axis powers won the war. But with the fight now shifting against them thanks to the Soviets and Americans, the regime agreed to revisit a final solution to Hitler's anti-Semitic desires. Heydrich believed it was his personal responsibility to carry out Hitler's directive. On January 20th, 1942, at a lakeside villa in Wannsee, Heydrich organized a conference of high-ranking officials to formally outline a new plan. Many Nazi officers were aware of Jewish massacres during previous invasions. However, these atrocities had largely been carried out exclusively by the SS. Thus, the purpose of the Wannsee Conference was to make mass murder of Jewish people into official Nazi policy. The Nazis saw this new development as a long-term genocide across the entire continent, meaning nearly 11 million Jews would be targeted. Heydrich also proposed the use of forced labor to mask the forthcoming genocide. First, Jews would be arrested, then deported to work camps. Those who survived would be forced further east to extermination centers in Poland, like Auschwitz. Though the meeting minutes didn't contain the words murder or massacre, the coded language insinuated otherwise. The only reason it wasn't explicitly stated was likely because the Nazis didn't want any written record to survive. The Wannsee Conference plan also ensured that Heydrich's organization, the Reich Security Office, would be in charge of the system. Heinrich Himmler may have been Heydrich's superior, but after Wannsee, everyone knew that the real architect behind the regime's genocide was Reinhard Heydrich. Then, in the spring of 1942, Heydrich saw another opportunity to expand his power. Across Nazi-occupied Western Europe, underground agents were sabotaging German supply lines, bombing factories, and assassinating Nazi personnel. Though not all the attacks were successful, there was an obvious spike in resistance activity, and Heydrich turned his attention to crushing it. However, at the time, neither Himmler's SS nor Heydrich's security forces were allowed to take control of policing in occupied France. Instead, that job was left to the German army and military intelligence, known as the Abwehr. Even though Hitler had endorsed Heydrich's death squads in Poland, many military officers despised them. This meant that in Western Europe, German military leaders ignored nearly every directive from Heydrich. But in the spring of 1942, the surge in the resistance caused Hitler to change course. In his view, the military administration was failing, and he needed someone with a proven track record of rooting out partisans. 
Reinhard Heydrich was the only man in the regime who fit the bill. At the beginning of May 1942, Heydrich traveled to Paris and surveyed the situation. He intended to organize France in the same way he'd done in the Protectorate, with brutal efficiency. This meant taking over the administration of the territory, installing SS and Reich security officers in powerful positions, and unleashing the Gestapo in the streets. At the same time, he told local officials of the Vanzi plans and that there would be upcoming deportations of French Jews. Roughly 1,000 prisoners had already been sent east, and Heydrich wanted to expel another 5,000 by 1943. In the weeks that followed, Heydrich returned to Prague and outlined a full plan for Hitler's final approval. Based on this, it's been widely speculated that Hitler was going to put Heydrich in charge of both occupied France and Belgium. In doing so, Hitler would be making the SS officer head of a civilian administration, which amounted to a major coup over the military leaders. Heydrich had long considered the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia nothing more than a step on the ladder to power. And over the last eight months, he had proven that he was more than capable of greater responsibility. So when Hitler ordered Heydrich back to Berlin on May 27th and informed him that he wouldn't be returning to Prague for several weeks, Heydrich likely expected a promotion. Almost 11 years since he was ousted from the Navy in disgrace, Reinhard Heydrich was possibly about to become the ruler of Nazi-occupied France. Unless something happened to him on the way out of Prague. Coming up, Operation Anthropoid puts a dent in Heydrich's grand plans. Now back to the story. Between his stranglehold on the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia and his authority over the Nazis' anti-Jewish policies, 38-year-old Reinhard Heydrich controlled the fates of millions. His goal was seeing Hitler's Aryan vision for Europe come to fruition. Heydrich's dedication to Hitler wasn't lost on the Führer. When resistance attacks against the Nazis surged in France in the spring of 1942, it appeared that Hitler would allow Heydrich to unleash his personal brand of terror on Western Europe. But a group of Czech assassins intended to stop Heydrich permanently. When the Nazis took control of Czechoslovakia in the late 1930s, many Czech politicians fled. They refused to collaborate with the Nazis and instead established a government in exile in the United Kingdom. This was led by deposed Czech president Edvard Benesch. Compared with other European countries, Czech resistance to the Nazis was minimal at first. This created a hostile relationship between Benesch and the British government who urged more Czech agitation. Unfortunately, Benesch had trouble finding partisans to fight the occupying Nazis. But after the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, Czech resistance within the protectorate suddenly increased. Benesch seized on the momentum and pressured resistance fighters in Prague to keep up the pace. Unfortunately, this second wave of resistance led to Heydrich's installation as protector. 
After Heydrich took over, communication between Benesch and the resistance in Prague was cut off. Still, Benesch refused to be deterred. He realized that the only way to take down the Nazis was through, quote, a spectacular action. Almost immediately, he concluded that assassinating the new Nazi governor was the best option. His decision to carry out an assassination wasn't taken lightly. Benish understood it was easy for him to order Heydrich's murder. He wouldn't pay the immediate consequences. Instead, he knew there would be reprisals against Czech citizens. But taking out one of the most powerful men in Europe was too vital to ignore. It could potentially deal a massive blow to the Nazi high command. So in the fall of 1941, Benesch and a handful of Czech officials secretly planned Heydrich's demise. They dubbed it Operation Anthropoid. The details of Operation Anthropoid were simple yet profoundly dangerous. British-trained Czech agents would parachute behind enemy lines, link up with local resistance cells in Prague, and gun down Heydrich. 30-year-old Josef Gopchik and 27-year-old Jan Kubisch were chosen as the assassins. Both Gopchik and Kubisch had experience fighting the Nazis during the initial takeover of Czechoslovakia and later in France. Both men understood that they were accepting a suicide mission. Neither expected to see London again, let alone make it out of Prague. But killing Reinhard Heydrich was worth it if his absence weakened the Nazi control over Europe. So, on the morning of December 29, 1941, Kubisch and Gopchik parachuted into the Protectorate, but immediately ran into trouble. Winter conditions caused the pilots to miss the drop zone, and Kubisch and Gabchik landed 75 miles from their target in Pilsen. As a result, they failed to link up with their resistance contacts. To make matters worse, Gabchik misjudged his landing and seriously injured his ankle on the frozen ground. He was only able to walk with Kubisch's assistance. Neither man knew where they were, and thanks to the snow, any suspicious Gestapo patrol could easily hunt them down by following their boot tracks. The mission appeared doomed from the jump. But by sheer luck, no Gestapo unit was anywhere nearby. Instead, a local miller who had seen them parachute in found them hiding in a quarry. In an even luckier coincidence, the miller had ties to the resistance. With his help, Gopchik and Kubisch boarded a train to Prague and used his contacts to connect them with resistance leaders in the city. For the next five months, the two men stalked Reinhard Heydrich, searching for the perfect spot to launch their attack. And as they studied the SS commander, they noticed something strange. He wasn't heavily guarded. After his violent and highly effective oppression over the Protectorate, Heydrich had convinced himself that no one would dare attack him. As such, he traveled in an open-top Mercedes with only a chauffeur named Klein. The assassins decided that the ideal time to attack Heydrich would be on his morning commute to Prague Castle, the Nazis' headquarters in the region. 
the perfect spot would be a hairpin curve in the road, where Heydrich's car was forced to slow down. Then, at the end of May, a Czech informant revealed to Gopchik and Kubish that Heydrich was leaving Prague on the 27th and that he would not be returning anytime soon. This was their moment to strike. On the morning of May 27, 1942, Gopchik, Kubish, and a lookout named Josef Valchik positioned themselves near the hairpin curve. Around 10.30 a.m., Valchik spotted Heydrich's car and signaled the others. As expected, Heydrich's Mercedes slowed down for the bend. As it did, Gobchik jumped in front of the car, pointed his submachine gun at Heydrich, and pulled the trigger. But the gun jammed. Heydrich told the driver to stop, stood up in his seat, grabbed his pistol, and fired back at Gobchik. Just moments after Heydrich squeezed the trigger, Kubish lobbed a bomb at the Mercedes. It landed next to the rear passenger tire and detonated. Shrapnel ripped through the Mercedes upholstery and shattered the windows of a passing trolley. Some even struck Kubish in the face, nearly blinding him. As Kubish wiped debris and blood from his eyes, Heydrich's driver, Klein, leaped out of the car with his own pistol and opened fire. While dodging the bullets, Kubish grabbed his bicycle and fled. Meanwhile, Gopchik abandoned the submachine gun and pulled out a pistol. After taking cover behind a telegraph pole, he fired several rounds at Heydrich. Unfortunately, none of the bullets found their target, and Heydrich continued stalking toward Gopchik. But just as Heydrich found himself face to face with his assassin, he collapsed. Not wasting the opportunity, Gopchik took off up the street. Klein rushed to Heydrich and found him bleeding profusely. Shrapnel from the bomb had torn through Heydrich's side. Pale and losing consciousness, Heydrich ordered Klein to chase down the assassins. Klein ran after Gobchik, who ducked into a butcher shop. But Gobchik quickly realized that there was no back door. He was trapped. He turned back to the entrance just as Klein burst into the shop. Gopchik opened fire, and this time, he didn't miss. One of his bullets struck Klein in the leg, giving Gopchik time to escape the shop and disappear. After the assassins escaped, Heydrich was rushed to a nearby hospital. But he refused to be operated on by Czech doctors. He wanted Nazi medical care. But Heydrich's condition was growing more dire by the minute. He had a ruptured diaphragm, a broken rib, and shrapnel lodged in his spleen. After some coercion, Heydrich reluctantly agreed to an operation, but only if a Nazi doctor stood in the operating room overseeing the entire procedure. While Heydrich went under the knife, word of the attack reached Hitler and Himmler, both of whom were furious. Himmler was allegedly so shaken that he burst into tears. They both demanded swift and severe retribution. Hitler immediately ordered the execution of 10,000 Czech hostages. He said, The Czechs have to learn the lesson that if they shoot down one man, he will immediately be replaced 
with somebody even worse. Thankfully, one of Heydrich's deputies managed to calm Hitler down. He convinced the Nazi leader that killing so many Czech workers could sabotage Germany's economic interests in the protectorate. It would also inspire more Czech resistance activity. Still, Hitler was bloodthirsty, and the Nazi officials offered a bounty of one million Reichsmarks. As well, anyone caught helping the killers would be executed, along with their families. As the hunt for the assassins commenced, Heydrich's condition seemed to improve. All signs pointed to a full recovery. However, less than a week after the attack, Heydrich's stomach suddenly became infected. At the time, Germany did not have access to penicillin, so the infection grew increasingly severe. For four days, the man responsible for murdering hundreds of thousands of innocents lay in excruciating pain. For years, he'd been regarded as an ideal physical model of supposed Aryan supremacy. Now, he withered in agony. Finally, on the morning of June 4, 1942, 38-year-old Reinhard Heydrich died. The Nazi response to Heydrich's death was a deluge of propaganda and bloodshed. On June 9th, they held an elaborate funeral in which Heydrich was portrayed as the quintessential SS officer. Himmler proclaimed that Heydrich was someone who should be emulated, though he acknowledged that no one else would be able to achieve such glory. Meanwhile, Hitler described him as a martyr, and after his eulogy, he bestowed upon Heydrich the German order, the highest honor within the Nazi party. But awards and eulogies were nothing compared to the level of violence the Nazis unleashed on the Czechs in Heydrich's name. After all, the assassins were still on the loose. On the day of Heydrich's funeral, the Nazis received word that his killers were hiding in the small village of Lidice. Hitler ordered the village destroyed as both retaliation and motivation for the townspeople to turn over the assassins. Later, a subsequent investigation revealed that the rumors were false. There was actually no link between the village of Lidjitsa and the resistance, nor were the assassins ever there. But the truth was of little consequence to the Nazis. The Gestapo reportedly executed 199 men between the ages of 14 and 84 in Lidice. Meanwhile, the women were deported to concentration camps. 95 children were arrested and racially screened. Fewer than 10 were declared worthy of being sent to German families. The rest were murdered in a mobile gas chamber. The carnage and destruction of Lidice didn't have the intended effect for the SS. No one came forward to offer clues or evidence revealing the assassin's location. The frustrated Nazis declared that if no one handed over the culprits by June 18th, there would be more executions across the territory. In the wake of this announcement, the Nazis received nearly 2,000 tips one of these which came from a man named Karel Churda. Churda was a resistance fighter who feared for his family's safety. While he didn't know the assassin's present location, 
He provided the names of people who had sheltered them in the past, including a man named Alois Moravets. On June 27th, the Gestapo arrested Moravets and his teenage son. For nearly 24 hours, the Gestapo ruthlessly interrogated them both. Finally, the teenager cracked. He told his captors that the assassins were hiding at the Orthodox Church of St. Cyril and Methodius in Prague. After their attack on Heydrich, Josef Gopchik and Jan Kubisch had bounced from safe house to safe house. The intense Gestapo crackdown made it impossible for them and their lookout, Josef Valchik, to leave the city. Finally, at the beginning of June, a priest agreed to hide them in the catacombs of the Orthodox Church. There, Gopchik, Kubisch, Valchik, and four others plotted their next move. After learning of the Nazis' violent crackdown, they considered publicly taking their own lives in the hope of stopping the bloodshed. But before any decisions could be made, Moravets's tip led the Nazis to them. On the morning of June 18, 1942, the assassins looked outside the church and saw it surrounded by hundreds of SS troopers. Then, the Nazis moved in and opened fire. For nearly two hours, Kubisch and two others managed to resist the SS from the choir stalls on the church's second floor. Eventually, the Nazi officers captured Kubisch, who was mortally wounded and died a short time later. Meanwhile, Gabchik and the rest of the men hid quietly in the catacombs, leading the Gestapo to believe that they had killed all of the assassins. But after aggressive questioning, the priest admitted that there were still other men beneath the church. For the next four hours, the Nazis attacked the catacombs, trying to smoke them out. Eventually, the SS blasted a hole into the catacomb ceiling. As Nazi troops poured inside to capture them, Gabchik and his comrades shot themselves. They believed it was better to take their own lives than be subjected to inevitable torture. In a sad twist of irony, Heydrich's assassination actually did more to end Czech resistance than the measures he undertook when he was alive. The Nazi crackdowns decimated the resistance. By the end of the summer, over 3,000 rebel fighters were arrested and over 1,300 were executed. With sabotage no longer a constant threat, Czech munitions factories continued manufacturing weapons for the Germans without pause. Worse still, Heydrich's death did nothing to prevent the Holocaust, as the genocide was already underway. Instead, the assassination motivated the Nazis to become even more ruthless in their systematic murder of Jews and other subjugated groups in Europe. After Heydrich's funeral, Heinrich Himmler announced, It is our sacred obligation to avenge his death to take over his mission and to destroy without mercy and weakness, now more than ever, the enemies of our people. Beginning in the summer of 1942, extermination camps were constructed throughout Nazi-occupied Poland. And over the course of a single year, roughly two million prisoners, predominantly Jews, 
were executed. This became known as Operation Reinhardt and constituted the deadliest phase of the Holocaust. If there's any shred of solace to be gleaned from these events, it's the knowledge that Heydrich's death was a fitting end. Though he never stood trial nor hung for his crimes against humanity, his final days were filled with suffering. His terrible death was the culmination of an evil life consumed by hatred, murder, and destruction. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our dive into the life of Waffen-SS Commando Otto Skorzeny. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>